0: Welcome to Codex Rex. My name is Dax, I am your host, and this is your co-host, or also host, Tyler. <laughs> yeah,
1: and he can't stop laughing because we, we have, have been serious... screwing
0: up this intro for about 10 minutes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> a serious case of the giggles here. <laughs> so what do we do here, Dax?
0: Yeah, this is a video game history podcast. We talk about video games, about the history of video games, about concepts of video games that has have been within the video game world for so long that sometimes you don't even think of them, but we do, and we try to research them. One person researches something, the other person listens to the person that has researched something, and then we discuss it, I guess.
1: That's pretty spot on. Yeah. So what have you been up to since the last time we recorded? Well, it's been a few weeks. Um, I'm mostly just trying to get my dissertation out. Uh, I'm in the final slog of that, so a few more months, and... I'll hopefully have my PhD. Um for fun things, I've been playing video games, uh as I do. I recently beat Death Stranding and man, what an awesome game. I won't blather on about that for a while cuz I could we could do 10 episodes on that game.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh I recently beat an a little indie game called Oxenfree that was recommended to me by um Dalcor in the community. It's this weird little story game where you like it's like these teenagers are stuck on this island and you have to make choices and like there's all these different endings but it was really cool because other players show up in your game and when you, this is a minor spoiler but when you get to the end of the game you can send messages to other players out in the world and they'll get them in their game and then like you show up in their credits. It was a really cool concept I thought. Yeah, it sounds really nice. I saw you played a bit Uh, it seemed interesting. Yeah, that and I've just been really obsessed with Ape Escape lately if you guys don't know ape escape it's an old ps1 game and i just decided to go through that series and it's like super wacky i
0: i don't understand how anyone could play that game but if you're into it (laughs) go for it
1: we should do an episode
0: on ape escape because apparently it was a huge hit (laughs) i'm not gonna do that episode (laughs) (laughs)
1: i'll do it i'll do it listen here's the thing about ape escape it there's like a there's like how do i want to put this Have you ever watched something that was so dumb that it was fun, right? Like a movie that was so stupid, it was funny. I I listen to an episode sometimes, so that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. That's very kind of you. Yeah, (laughs) great. Regardless, Ape Escape fits into that category. Like it's so dumb that it knows that it's dumb. Yeah, totally. I get it. And, and, like, you, you, just, you just let it wash over you. And all, the charac- like,
0: all the character lines, like, seem like they've been spoken by teenagers
1: and stuff <laughs> like that. It's so weird. <laughs> it's, like, so bad that it's good. I love it. Yeah. But um, what have you been
0: up to? I've got finals, so I procrastinate most of the time also playing video
1: games. I saw you playing Deep Rock Galactic.
0: Yeah, as always. Yeah. Rock and good Stone, can Can change it Rock and Stone. It's um, one of the best games for
1: multiplayer that exists. So, yeah. I agree. The feedback loop is just perfect. We do have an email address now, right? We have an official Codex Rex email. If you want to send us an email with thoughts or topics you'd like us to research or general comments or, like, discussions of how Suave Docs sounds, you can send those now too codexrexpodcast at gmail.com it's literally just codexrexpodcast at gmail.com and also you have a twitch stream so if
0: one would like to hang
1: out with you they could go on to www.twitch.com slash vegan title i think it's twitch.tv but yeah yep that would be the easiest way to find me yeah are you ready i'm ready let's do this
0: Alright, hit me with it. Today, we begin in the first day of 1964. Important year for America, because a rough year lies behind for the American people. Do you happen to remember who got assassinated in 1963? John F. Kennedy. John F. Kennedy got assassinated in the two months prior to the first day of 1964. John F. Kennedy got killed, and the shock of this must have lingered for months in the U.S. since this was a huge deal. It, it, was a, it was a dark year for the American people. But on the other hand, in Europe, um, if one might be interested, the Élysée contract was signed by Konrad Adenauer, the German chancellor, and Charles de Gaulle, the French prime minister, which would ring in an age of friendship, between France and Germany, um, see how I sneaked in some, some politics here? <laughs> <laughs> just a flinch, just a little. But now it's the first day of 1964. On this day, something wonderful happens because someone is born that will change the world for the better because of what something he would do and um, something he would create that we would profit from. Someone was born in
1: Oregon, La Grande, called Ron Gilbert. All right. So on this day, Ron Gilbert came kicking and screaming, covered in bile and gore and his mother's innards, ready to hit the world.
0: Yeah. And he's going to (laughs) be like the, the prophets have, um, destined that he would do great things. And he went on to not do great things for a couple, for a couple of years. He was the son of a university professor that did like astrophysics or something. What's your beef with astrophysics? Yeah, but his dad did great things. He didn't do anything. He was just being a baby, you know? Okay, that's fair. (laughs) He's just a shitty kid. (laughs) I wanted to stand up for astrophysics. (laughs) (laughs) He would bring joy to people's hearts later on in his life by, in his words, dancing naked on top of his ideas. But we will talk about this more later. So when he was 12 years old, his dad brought home a calculator. And it wasn't just a simple calculator, but it was one that had a games on it. It was a programmable calculator. And you, the games that were on it already were like number guessing, like there's a number between 1 and 10, you have to guess the right one. Or like very rudimentary battleships games that you could play against in uh, a stupid AI. But the calculator, as I said, could also be programmed by the user, and Ron grew obsessed with the concept of being able to program a machine. The idea was fascinating to him because programming to him was like magic. I think it's something if you start programming that comes, acro- um, that comes to your mind really quickly that how fascinating it is to make machines do these unthinkable tasks for, for our human brains in seconds. And so his dad taught him how to program this machine. They said it was a TI, So Mm. I kind of figured out which calculators came out about the time that he was 12 years old. And there is like
1: the (laughs) TI-59 that could have been it, but I'm
0: I'm not really sure.
1: So I don't have, I'm not sure which calculator it was back then, but I do know that like Texas Instruments kind of has like a stranglehold on the calculator market, which is like really weird. In the US at least, yeah. I have one here. Dox is holding up the exact (laughs) calculator i've got one right up there on my desk that i've had since forever yeah so what's really fascinating to me just before we move on is you know when i was in high school right the early 2000s i remember like people having these sort of like jailbroken calculators and they had like little games on them but it was really simple stuff like snake or whatever and so what year was this that he was seeing this calculator in, like, the, the 70s? Yeah, like 78. That's crazy to me, because I just never thought that calculators could do that at that time and be, like, portable.
0: Yeah, they had really early pro-calculators. They huh. were far more chunky than the ones we're used to. Okay. But, but not in a way that they were huge, because the operations that they would do um, did not require the most tremendous amount of computing power. Okay. Another influence he had in what he would become, um, he describes in this quote quite well. The other thing that happened to me was a little movie called Star Wars. Now, when Star Wars first came out, it's like it's impossible to describe what it meant to us. It's hard to describe what that movie meant and how different it was. It's like today all movies are like Star Wars, but back then there had been nothing like it ever. And Star Wars was a movie that started the entire summer blockbuster. Star Wars was a movie where you went into the movie one person and came out as another. Obviously, Ron Gilbert would turn into the biggest Star Wars nerd. So (laughs) his opinion might be biased on this. (laughs) Sure. But the influence of Star Wars, I heard that from my parents as well, that the first time this movie hit, that this was a cultural event and um, that it... Changed the perspective upon what movies could do even though similar
1: things did exist beforehand just not on such a broad scale right i think that you know it just there were other movies that did similar things so they just didn't catch on and, and become part of like the cultural zeitgeist that that star wars did i mean it was everywhere
0: he describes later how he's very thankful that he was able to see star wars release at that time and age because he was like 14 years old. Mm -hmm. And he claims that it changed his life entirely. He had a considerable Star Wars fixation and a programmable calculator. The next step was kind of obvious. Let's create Star Wars games on his calculator. And he grew into what we today would call a fanboy. And he spent his entire youth obsessing about George Lucas and the creation of the movies and anything that had to do with it. Like these people, they were his idols, his heroes. Nobody could compete with them. The, the, the best of the best. And he, he wanted to be like them. Uh, he describes Star Wars was the first time that his childish mind was confronted with the concept of creating art. Hmm. Like imagine how when we we're kids, we kind of often we take things for granted because we have not been confronted with the back end of creation. Yeah. And at some point in life you realize what a tremendous amount of work goes
1: into any creative process. <clears throat> so I had this uncle, he's no longer living, he's been dead for like 15 years or something at this point. And when I was a kid, I'm young, young. Um, you know, the Sega Genesis was my console of choice. And he knew like rudimentary programming, and I couldn't tell you what his job was, like I knew he like worked with servers all day and mm-hmm. he's like a we thought of him as a computer guy in an era in which there weren't really home PCs. And it, I mean, there were, but not everyone had them. They're not like they were today where you could just pull out your smartphone and see someone's face instantly. Right. And so he said to me, I'm going to make you a video game. Okay. So why don't we, the next time I see you, we'll talk about what you want. I'm going to program you a video game. And so for like months, I obsessed over this idea that he was going to make me a video game. And I had all these crazy ideas of what it would look like and how it would be. And I had all my action figures, because I was a little kid. I was probably younger than 10. Yeah. And um, I, you know, oh, it's, we're going to put this character in and this character is going to be, you know, the main character and it's going to be a game like this. And I had all these crazy ideas and I go to see him and, you know, he's at my grandmother's house <laughs> and I walk in and I dump out this bag of toys. And I'm like... <laughs> I want to put all these characters in the game and he is flabbergasted and he's just like, Oh, um, no, no, it's, uh, it, it doesn't work like that. But I was thinking something like Pong or something like something really simple. Cause that's a lot of work. And like, I don't have the capacity to like make 3d models of those characters. And I remember just being like, huh? Like, it didn't occur to me that, like, of course, this one singular person who knows how to, like, code basic shit wouldn't be able to make me the greatest video game that had ever been created. So, yeah, yeah. I totally relate, right? He, like, he, that was he promised my you a game. Moment. Why
0: couldn't he make you the best game ever? Of course. Exactly. Yep. But this is where, where something comes in also that's probably also was important for your story is that the capabilities of his hardware were limited. So probably exactly. your uncle probably also didn't have a machine that was even able to get close to what you were fantasizing about. No, not at all. And because Ron Gilbert's calculators' um, hardware capabilities were limited as well, he was delighted when his family finally acquired a home computer. It was c- called maybe you know those we, don't, we didn't we didn't have these over here a North Star computer. North Star. I never was, had one was kind of a big brand um, between 1976 and 1984 they were called north star computers incorporated and they were like a like an early computer company that sold some of the first affordable american home computers okay like in opposition to the pdp1 that we talked about that still cost about all the money you would ever make in the world (laughs) (laughs) yeah fun fact about them is originally the two founders called the company Con- Kentucky Fried Computer, but they got
1: sued by Kentucky Fried Chicken <laughs> and they had to change it. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> The colonel will get his due.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but basically, North Star had created their own hardware, including their own affordable floppy disk system, and they also sold it with their own operating system called Control Program Monitor or Control Program for Microcomputers, short CPM. And like, if you programmed North Star computer, you'd use a programming language called BASIC. And BASIC mm-hmm. will require its own episode, Because this programming language, even though it was still rather cryptic in comparison to the languages that are available today, was designed to be easier to use than its predecessors, and it greatly influenced the whole generation of video game developers. Each piece of hardware got its own dialect of basic, and so did the North Star computers. Within this computer terminal, Ron Gilbert created these text-based Star Wars games for him and his friends, and it wasn't just Star Wars games that he made, because according to him, he came up with a bunch of stuff like simple text-based RPGs. So even he even made a driving simulator, where the car was like an ASCII symbol that would go upwards huh. on the screen, and it was mostly about avoiding obstacles that were other ASCII characters. So he kind of made turned the the whole limitation of the hardware that he had into into abstraction. Like, let's abstract a car into a symbol. That's basically how early computer game development
1: worked lot. I'm just imagining that scene in The Matrix where he's just looking at ones and zeros walking down the street. Yeah. Yeah, he can he can see the code. Yeah, yeah. Of course. Didn't you play didn't you used to play um what's that game? Caves of Cud? Isn't that like ASCII characters or am I thinking of something else? Yeah,
0: Caves of Cud tries to it, it's not ASCII characters, but it kind of emulates the not emulates, but it kind of sim, is similar to what Rogue was. Okay. In in Rogue that was like a real hardcore defender of the concept of a roguelike would say that a roguelike is only a roguelike if it also only consists of ASCII characters.
1: Ah, uh, I think that I feel that like we might be need a bit to too hardcore. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to speak over you. I feel like we need to do an episode about this fight in the community between roguelikes and roguelites because I feel like they're interchangeable, but I understand why there is a discrepancy and yeah, man a, people get heated
0: we could do a podium discussion and i take the side of people that are right saying that <laughs> rogue likes are only games that are exactly like rogue and you can take the stupid side <laughs>
1: okay yeah i'll just uh i'll take the stupid side <sighs> cool <laughs> thanks man <laughs>
0: so sometimes i wish that i was introduced to programming when i was younger because i wasn't i learned programming yeah much, much later, in my mid 20s. And I totally also would have wasted my entire youth with stuff like that, creating my own games, um, turning my imagination into video game abstraction. But I wasn't allowed on my father's PC too much because every time I
1: touched it and something broke, it was my fault, so I just
0: stopped using it.
1: Yep, that's the age old parents who don't understand computers it's broken, you touched it, it must have been you. Yeah, I remember how once I got introduced to the level editor in
0: StarCraft,
1: oh. and
0: I'd do nothing else but try to create minigames. Yeah. It would, it would take forever, but it felt so good once you, you kind of evened the glitches out and made the whole concept work. And a quote by Ron Gilbert fits quite well at this point. Being creative truly is a journey. It can be scary and terrifying, and can be humbling, depressing, and agonizing. But when you end this journey, it's liberating, it's empowering, and it's exhilarating. And it's wonderful if it's done right. You are not the same person that started the journey. There really is nothing like creating something from nothing. There's no feeling like creating something from where nothing existed before. And he gave this as an answer when asked about how he approaches his creative process. And he, he, he said he couldn't, he can't really answer that, but only described how the creative process itself was such a tr- transformative event that during his life he has grown obsessed with it. So he, whenever he gets an opportunity to be creative, he can't say no, he has to do it because he loves it. He's addicted to the, yeah. to what it does to you. That's really fascinating to hear that. So in our chronology, Ron Gilbert is still a teenager And one year for Christmas, he receives an upgrade for his family's North Star computer. They get a graphic card. Oh, shit. Yeah. Holy noises. Ah, And the technology floated down from on high. (laughs) And it gave him the abilities to depict 128 times 128 pixels of 16 colors. Crazy. Yeah. And (laughs) like what... Young Gilbert did next, because it reminds me a lot of other game development stories we listened to already, is his first design ideas he didn't come up with by himself, but he he just he blatantly copied them. He went to the local arcade uh, with like some paper to duplicate the sprites and graphics he saw on the screens and he studied the already existing games and he studied all of these details turned them into like copied designs, and he tried to to recreate them on his computer. He just looked at his, his all his notes and tried to figure out how to program this on his computer. I do think that that is a great way to learn any kind of programming. It's not to come up with everything by yourself. It's about to get a project that you know exists already and try to remake it because it's, it's not to make profit off of it, but to get one big burden out of the way that comes with development. And this big burden is, mm-hmm. if you ever try to come up with a game or a piece of software, you will notice soon enough that the moment that the amount of work on even the smallest features is horribly tedious, even coming up with features is rough. Having something in front of you that you can analyze gives you kind of a set of problems you can solve without having to pour too much energy into the initial innovation of it, if you know what I mean.
1: Yeah, yeah. So <clears throat> I'm wondering how common this is to try and copy video games and like make things at, at this time. I mean, it'd be really hard to copy something.
0: I mean, there's a lot of development studios that just came out of the modding
1: community. For
0: example, if you check out Gearbox, mm, the people that created Borderlands, they created mods for Half-Life before they did yeah. anything else. I, I can't come up with any more, but I think it's a common trope to first do mods and then do games.
1: I was going to say, it reminds me, this is a similar time period too. It reminds me of Andy Gavin and Jason Rubin from the second episode we did about Crash Bandicoot, how they went out to the arcade and tried to port... Um, Oh God, what was the game? Punch out. I think they were trying to court they were trying to port punch out from the arcade to a home PC. and they like went and studied all of the specific like ways that characters interacted. if I'm remembering the story correctly. And so like I think that's really interesting. You put it a good way that like learning how to replicate something is the first step to knowing how to do it differently.
0: So once he managed to copy some of the games from the arcade, he was able to change things. Like, he could experiment with different parameters, basically modify these facsimiles of already existing games. He never says which games he copied, Mm -hmm. probably because he doesn't want to do any advertising or get into any legal trouble or something. But he does mention that the games he copied involved alien spaceships. So what he describes sounds a lot like Side scroller, too. And I was going to look at like in a, what kind of games could have been like arcade games from 1984. And there was one game from 1982 that was called Zaxxon,
1: um, mm, yeah,
0: which was kind of an isometric style, um, not side scroller but spaceship game where you shoot things. For me, this seems difficult to use as a starting point because the graphics seemed kind of difficult. And also he didn't, his graphic card definitely didn't have the capability to do that. But who knows? Yeah. Dude, this guy spent his entire day doing this stuff. So if he loves that, he probably came up with solutions to kind of um, recreate that. Yeah. I did some further digging and there was also an actual Star Wars arcade game while he was that age. Really? Yeah, they kind of sold the rights to create the games rather early. And it was developed and published by the Parker Brothers. Hmm. Parker Brothers is an um, it's like the board game division of Hasbro. Yeah. And it might have been that he also
1: copied that, but we're not sure. Do you know anything about the Star Wars game? I, I, I seem to remember that there was some Star Wars arcade game that was sort of like ahead of its time, that was like trying to be 3D, but it wasn't. Um, I can't remember what the it wasn't. It
0: called. wasn't 3D. I saw pictures of it. It's basically how are these the big robots called the, the walkers uh, uh 8080s yeah there was an 8080 and i think you would shoot it down that was the whole idea of the okay. game okay cool so not only did he change the, like menial stats of the game but he also added new enemies or came up with his own little story to add into the games that slowly turned from turned the game from a copy into something that was actually his creation we also must stress that He didn't copy any code or algorithms. He did everything by himself. He just looked at it and then figured out, how do I do this from scratch? Because he couldn't look at the code. He just could look at the arcade machines, probably also paid a bunch of quarters to look at that stuff, like spent his entire earnings to to get a glimpse at um, what could be done. Even though those games from this time, they look simple, they are not. They are not simple, especially because they were written in a programming language that these languages were much tougher to wrap your head around. And this is likely, literally, like looking at a picture of by a painter you like. But you don't know which technique or tools he used to achieve this artwork. And you're just ma- you're just remaking it anyway. And, and probably rather well. It's a good way to think of it. Yeah. And Ron says that at this point, he heard his true calling. This was going to be what he would do for the rest of his life. Like, 15-year-old Ron spending all day in his basement smelling like hmm. an old potato this yeah. is my life now i love this
1: <laughs>
0: he, yeah uh that was i can imagine that i know that when i yeah. was 15 i wanted to be a counter strike programmer. so oh did you <laughs> yes i totally i was terrible
1: but i i had ambitions yeah mm. i was convinced i was gonna i was gonna make video games that was my thing. Yeah. But it was always that I I didn't expect to have the computer knowledge. I wanted to write the stories for video games. That was going to be my thing. I was going to come up with the stories. Mm. It didn't pan out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So when you were young, did you ever tell anyone that you wanted to become
0: a video game designer?
1: Yeah, I told my whole family. How did they, were... they react? Well, they were like, well, that makes sense, because that's all I did as a kid. That's all I did was they, play video games. Oh, they,
0: so they kind of gave you passive aggressive support
1: for it. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, it was. It's interesting, though, because when I finally decided to go to school for political science, they were very confused. <laughs> they were just like, I thought you were going to do something with computers. And I was like, no, no, I want to study politics. And they're like, OK, sure. And there was talk mean-natured behind-my-back talks with some of my family that maybe I probably wouldn't stick with it, right? What? So the the, the conflict <laughs> was that instead of becoming a video game
0: developer, you became a filthy political scientist. Disgusting. <laughs> I don't...
1: <laughs> How dare you study the interrelations between governmental systems! <laughs>
0: <laughs> so Ron Gilbert had um, actually yeah. a not-so-similar thing because he also told his family, but his family was he, they were confused. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he, like, whenever he told people, he got a lot of backlash. Yeah, for wanting to become a video game designer. And apparently, in high school, he once got an F on a report because he printed it out, after like he printed out the report after typing it out on his computer. And the, the reason for the F he got was he wasn't supposed to let a machine write his homework.
1: Mm,
0: of course. <laughs> he should do it himself.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: like this kind of shows how people were still entirely oblivious about what a computer was. They, they, yeah. they got their knowledge from weird sci-fi probably. And the the idea of actually working in the computer industry... Had not entered the mind of the everyday person. So if you said, I want to be a,
1: a video game developer, everybody would be like, What? You, what? Yeah. yeah. I can see that being really a weird thing to say at a time when it was like, I mean, we talked about this in other episodes, that there was definitely this idea for a while that video games were like for kids. You know, they are, those are things that kids play with. Right. Yeah. And so, yeah. like, I can see there being like, Maybe a lack of understanding in by the general populace because there wasn't mass acceptance like there is today.
0: Yeah, just imagine how it is today. If you today yeah. say I work with computers in any kind of fashion, people probably think that you're making a fortune.
1: Um, yeah, usually. Yeah.
0: <laughs> wow, how good for you! I wish I could do that. <laughs> mm-hmm. But even though that is also wrong, because working in the computer industry is so common now that it it doesn't pay much better than any other job probably even pays worse because of all the extra hours you have to do
1: i think it depends on the position though i do know i do know a guy who i went to college with and he finished his degree and went immediately into the industry and he is about to buy his second home <laughs> and i'm like oh yeah i'll i'll finish my dissertation someday <laughs> So, yeah, it just depends. Yeah, quite the uh, expensive taxi license you're getting there, Tyler. Uh Uh-huh, that's great. Yep. Maybe someone will pay me to stand on a street corner and talk about policy outputs. (laughs) Spare spare some change for political scientists.
0: But today, people, if you say you do computer stuff, they think that you did the right decision, in your life and back then when you said that they will think that you did the wrong decision in your life. Complete opposite sides of history. His teachers in university actually later on they were appalled by the idea that he wanted to become a video game developer. They they thought it was nonsense. And Ron's life choices didn't make any sense to a lot of people around him. But he kept going. He was convinced that this was going to make him happy. And he would dance naked hmm. on what he loves. That's why he kept telling everybody. He still does pretty good cynical, like if you like hear interviews with him, he, whenever he talks about people back then and how he talked down on him, how they talked down on him, he goes into these cynical rants about how stupid grown-ups in the 80s were and how much he hated them it's it's kind of amazing he's so he's still like 40 years later he's so pissed at them he never got over it no and i I do recommend checking his talks out he's a he's a good public speaker and he's he's it's it's fun listening to him complaining about his 80s teachers Hmm. so while he was in college he got a commodore 64 oh shit oh yeah The great introducer.
1: It's it's on now.
0: (laughs) (laughs) He kind of figured out how to hack the ROMs and add in his own graphics and sounds that were not on them before. And he called it this little software that could do that. He called it Graphics Basic. And he sent it. He was like, I'm going to send this to a company. This is fun. He sent it to a company in California called Human Engineered Software, H-E-S. Human Engineered Software was a hardware developer and publisher that operated from Brisbane, California. They existed from 1980 until 1984. We are still in the first half of the 80s. And they exclusively developed for the Atari and the Commodore. And they were interested in Gilbert's graphics software. Okay. That could kind of be described as... Like a game engine, but it wasn't for games, it was like just like to to it contained resources that could be assembled into software with a graphical user interface. And not only did they like graphics basic, after Ron polished the software a bit and sent it to human-engineered software, they offered him a job. Hmm. And he was currently yeah, he was currently stuck in college, but since they asked him to develop games for them, he must have been pretty hypnotized by the thought of throwing out all current plans <laughs> and going all in on his dream. Yeah. So did he do it? Now, uh-huh. oh. <laughs> no. <laughs> now here comes the thing that the young college students will have to face if they make such a decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is the wrath of their parents. <laughs> and yeah. Ron's dad... As we said, he was an astrophysics PhD. Oh, man. And he was also the president of the university he was studying at.
1: Oh, man.
0: <laughs> and he was like, I have to tell my dad, who's the <laughs> boss of this institution, that I don't want to be here anymore. i like, I quit your club, Dad. I don't want to be – Like this, this must feel like – I don't want him to feel like that – Like maybe it sounds to him like I don't want to be his son anymore or something. Like I I can I can understand the fear.
1: So did Ron die in 1984? Is that where the story ends?
0: (laughs) Yes, that's done. Uh, That's it. Next (laughs) one, another
1: one in the bank. Uh, (laughs) (laughs)
0: uh, Like I'm I'm going to quit your club, Dad. I will go and live in San Francisco to work (laughs) for people I have never met, because this is my dream, Dad. I don't care what you think, Dad. I want to make computer games, Dad. You can't stop me.
1: <laughs> I wasn't even into- in the room for this, and I'm feeling pain thinking about how it went. <laughs> and whenever he talks
0: about this, you can feel how he was terrified. Oh, to, yeah. dis- to disappoint his parents. Yeah. You know what his dad asked him once he told him about his plans to go to California? Hit me with it. How much do they pay you? Ooh. it's like the most boomer question you can think of but <laughs> of course <laughs> but yeah. um once his father learned that ron gilbert would earn more money with human engineered software than the best paid professor at university his dad just went like yeah you should probably take that shut up <laughs> really <laughs> shut it up is- his dad was like do it yeah of course oh my god you wouldn't if you if you stay in college you will never make that much money
1: (laughs) fuck yeah papa gilbert (laughs) you you get man that was not what i expected i'm like i'm imagining his father like eating him and just like limb from limb dude when i read this i was so relieved (gasps) (laughs) holy shit Okay. All right, cool.
0: So, so that's it. He's like, okay. He packs his things, drives all the way to California, starts working as a uh, – he, like, he kind of starts making games for them. It was uh-huh. kind of HES break into the gaming world. And um, so this is 1983. Do you still remember how long I told you that human-engineered software existed?
1: 1984.
0: <laughs> Until 1984. They went bankrupt a few months after Horn joined them. Of course. (laughs) He worked there for six months and he was laid off. He went back home and decided to go back to university. (laughs) (laughs) His his dreams were crushed. (laughs) He he was devastated. Six six months ago, he thought he had made it his dream was finally coming true oh he was going on this epic adventure the most epic adventure you could think of as a young man and now it's all a burning dumpster fire a
1: roller coaster docks. <laughs> he has to look his parents in the eyes oh.
0: and be like a, a, this,
1: this did work out. I'm sorry. Oh.
0: Um, and, it, and this week, like this, is one of the things you wake up at night when you're like 32, and you like all of a sudden your brain goes like, "Remember when that happened?" Mm-hmm. And you're like, <laughs> <laughs> "Yep, oh yeah."
1: Uh,
0: the shameful flashbacks of how naive he was.
1: Oh. And
0: yeah, that's the end of the episode. All um, right, and
1: that's it. Another, we're done, kids.
0: Um, the lesson is don't follow your dreams yeah stay in school um, they will disappoint you anyway Mm -hmm. nobody cares for you money will fuck you over in the end
1: yeah see if you make it so that no one has any expectations of you then you can never disappoint anyone Okay. Also, that's that's the moral of this story. Your teachers are
0: always right. If they tell you this is stupid, don't do that,
1: believe them. Yeah.
0: Um, Everyone. They are old and wise, Mm -hmm. and life has broken their hearts already. Break (laughs) yours yourself before someone else does it to you. (laughs) Oh my God.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So don't listen to any of our advice, (laughs) live your own life. Okay, no,
0: just, but just imagine this <laughs> is what was Poor going on in one's head.
1: Poor fucking. dude, this is, Oh my god. Yeah,
0: Whew. he was. He sits at home. He's okay. like, I, I apparently I misunderstood how life works. This is. <laughs> I'm. I'm done. Um, okay. He 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 signed up back for university to start again. He was just sitting at home, wasting. He wasted a semester, which mm-hmm. feels terrible at that age. Uh, he he's cooking in his own depression grease when one day he just decides to go out like at least socialize with a friend or something so he goes out to his car he's standing at his car door time feels like it's slowly eating away at his carcass of Hmm. a body and then he's like he hears the phone ringing inside and now I believe that anybody can relate to what his thought process was and that is he was so down and frustrated that he didn't even feel like he could walk back up the driveway. Mm. He's, he goes like, and like, I can't go into the house and just answer that stupid phone. I don't care. It wasn't worth it anyway. He was done with everything. He didn't care anymore. But for some reason, he claims that this phone, taunt, that this phone call taunted him. The ringing, it called out to him, asking him, you have to go back inside. Hmm. You have to take this phone call. Like the sirens mocking Ulysses hmm. to go into the water <laughs> and be entirely devoured. So he had it, the sirens call. Really? Okay. He went back inside and thus he received the phone call that changed his life. On the other end was someone from Lucasfilm. Shut up. The Lucasfilm. The Lucasfilm. Known for the entire Star Wars franchise, they were looking for someone that could program for a Commodore 64. And Lucasfilm was not part of the gaming industry
1: yet. Oh, man. Nobody
0: knew that George Lucas had anything in mind concerning video games. But remember, George Lucas was Ron Gilbert's messiah. Uh And the Lucasfilm people were his apostles. Yeah. And he, I mean... and a gang of sacred people blessed with the most wonderful ideas Ron had ever experienced in his entire life. And they were on the phone with him.
1: I can't Just imagine the imagine phone that. call.
0: And he's like, you want me to do what? Uh, come in for on, Come in on what day?
1: Tomorrow? <laughs> <laughs> what now? Yes. Okay. I'm coming. I'm basically in my car already. <laughs> what?
0: What? What? I need. Do I need an address? Oh yeah, of course I need an address. <laughs> yes. Did you, did you ask me to come in for an interview? Oh boy. Oh boy. <laughs> I can't imagine. So what he did instead of visiting his friend, he went into the car, moved back to California. Uh, okay. <laughs> Easy peasy. Lucasfilm headquarters are in San Francisco as well. Of course. And let's talk about these guys for a bit. Um, The gaming branch of Lucasfilm, which is called Lucasfilm Games at that time, existed since 1982, so when Ron was still in college. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And this is like when Raiders of the Lost Ark came out a year ago, and Return of the Jedi was in production. Okay. George Lucas was highly successful during the last 10 years due to the grand impact of the Star Wars genre. They decided to restructure the company to diversify the entertainment that Lucasfilm would provide and their vision was kind of an interactive multifaceted state of the art entertainment company.
1: Okay. It's a lot of buzzwords. Yeah.
0: <laughs> they started pumping money into some fresh subsidiary to grab a big chunk of the still young branch of the video game industry. And before Gilbert reached the company around 1985, they had been creating games for the Atari 800. These titles were designed for arcades because a lot of arcades were filled with Atari 800s in these weird shaped, specially designed boxes, mm-hmm. like games like Ballblazer by David Levine. It was kind of a one-on-one futuristic ball game. Um, I, I looked at some footage and it kind of looks like a Zudu 3D version of Rocket League. Huh, cool. Yeah, um, but more stressful. how how is that possible i i I don't know it it, maybe it's just because the the graphics were so so rudimentary that our Mm -hmm. our very spoiled eyes can't can't take it anymore now were there Um, two
1: other like players that were playing with you at the same time that would scream fuck at you every time you messed up because that yeah. would really give me the Rocket League experience. That would
0: be the Rocket League experience, right? Yeah. If everybody hated you and and also showed you that you are a human piece of trash. Like the no, utmost the
1: contempt. Like just oozing with contempt and screaming fuck word <laughs> after fuck word. If, if, if it isn't that, then it's not Rocket League, so...
0: Codex Rex and Associates don't have any opinion on the Rocket League uh, community. We think that the Rocket League community is an outstanding part of the gaming world and should not be criticized in any way.
1: <laughs> the, the opinions, the opinions of the Codex Rex hosts, do not reflect the opinions of Psionics Games. <laughs> Rocket League and its associated subsidiaries have no say in this Codex Rex podcast episode. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so <but laughs> apparently people seem to really like this ballblazer game because it was hyper fast yeah and reviewers love that yeah they also created one of the earliest first person shooters called rescue on Fractulus. Res- rescue on what F- Fractulus. it's 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 a weird name like fr- um fractalus like like, like 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 fracture okay but instead of fracturus. like okay. l-u-s in the end Fractulous. okay Fractulus. Fractulus. Uh. <laughs> Who knows? And in that game, you kind of controlled a spaceship that shoots aliens and rescues other sh- spaceship pilots and uh, had kind of a also a pseudo 3D flair about it. And uh, if you always, when we talk about these retro games, I always recommend um, just looking these up because even though we kind of can describe them there's always footage of them and yeah. it gives you a really good feeling of what kind of game we're talking about because this is very different from the kinds of games we use today the, the, like there's still ret- games that are made that kind of look retro-esque but certain kinds of retro games are not made anymore they, they there's no real retro aesthetic they only do like they do pixel graphics to give it a retro flair but pixel graphics don't make a game fundamentally retro fundamentally retro it has a very plump style about it in a positive way it's really weird check these cool. games out ballblazer rescue and Fractalus. they look really interesting i like that you sound mm-hmm. like an art critic Docs. yes <laughs> i mean this is art this is it is especially i mean especially comparative art I mm-hmm. really wish I, in 20 years there would be people comparing these things artistically.
1: All right. So Ron starts telling people, I want to go design video games, right? And everybody recoils in disgust. If he had said, I'm going to go be an artist, would they have done that? I don't think. Hard to say. You know, you still might have gotten the, well, how much are they going to pay you, right, kind of thing. But I think that if video games are art, then, you know... The people who make them are practicing a certain kind of art, and yep. uh, yeah, I was just thinking about that. And so then I started thinking about while you were talking about all these different games and and the styles, I was thinking about how like if video games are an art- are an artistic medium, then these are just you know you're getting better and better tools to express yourself on that medium, but sometimes people just like the old aesthetics. You know, you might have this crazy, you could go get unity engine and pump out some crazy 3d game with insane graphics, but man, like nothing beats the old shit. Right. Like, and that's, you know, that, that was the style and styles evolve, but like, there's still something to be said for the old ones. Absolutely. Which is, I guess why we do these episodes.
0: I think so too. So Ron came to Lucasfilm games after these games released. And as we said, he was hired not to make games. He was hired to port games to the Commodore 64 since they were only making games for the Atari 800. And he describes his first weeks at the company as the most wonderful time. These people were creative and smart and brilliant, but they were also all huge Star Wars nerds. Everybody that worked there was a fan of George Lucas' art. And this is where something weird comes in. Even though they all were breathing Star Wars through all of their pores, they were not allowed to make Star Wars games. And remember how I told you about that Star Wars game by Parker? Mm -hmm. Lucasfilm had
1: given away the rights to Star
0: Wars video games to other companies before they created their own gaming group.
1: And so, were they legally kept from making their own games? Is that what you? They were legally kept from making Star Wars games for how long? For quite a while. You
0: know that there's, you, you know, many Star Wars games like yeah. Knights of the Old Republic are uh, LucasArts Lucas games. Mm-hmm. So at some point, um, the licenses ran out or they repurchased them. Right, right. But at that point, that wasn't the case. And Ron Gilbert has said a quote about that issue. Now, had we been allowed to make Star Wars games, I'm sure that's all we would have made. Mhm. But not being able to make them really freed us. It creatively freed us in ways that I don't think we understood at the time. We should always embrace limitations and figure ways out to make them a strength. To this day, I'm thankful that we were not allowed to make Star Wars games. Hmm. And this, of course, is kind of, it kind of returns to something we talk about every episode, and that is, limitations make a great yeah. video game it's the thing if you have to get around a limitation it turns what you're making into what makes it actually great that's
1: really interesting totally right like i'm i'm, I'm thinking of like what a strange situation for this guy who's d- having all these ups and downs trying to get into video games and he gets called by lucas arts and they want him to come and work for them and then they're like oh but we can't make star wars games Like, what a strange turn of events, right? Like, imagine, like, I don't know, that would be like someone, the Sega team calls me up and says, "We, you know, we want you to come work for us, but you can't make Sonic games. I'd be like, why am I here, right? Like, (laughs) I I don't care about anything else you do. I don't give a fuck about your Crazy Taxi remake. I want Sonic. (laughs) If you're suddenly put with all these creative people who think like you, who love the same shit you do but you can't make stuff about it, you can still direct that energy into something else.
0: Yeah, I think so too.
1: Funny side story
0: here. So George Lucas's best director buddy, Steven Spielberg, apparently loves video games. And whenever Spielberg visits his buddy George, he'd come by the games group to check out the new games and hang out with them. So Ron Gilbert describes how weird it was to literally hang out with George Lucas, like with these people he was idolizing years before. (laughs) They just sit beside him, playing the games that he was porting or creating. And he thought that this was the most surreal thing that ever happened to him, meeting these people. All in all, the people at Lucasfilm Games were a team, and their creations were a team effort. But Ron Gilbert will create something that will be game-changing for the company. While working on other projects within the company, he started sketching out his own ideas of a game he would like to create. Not a shooter like Rescue on Fractalus, or like, also not like some futuristic ball game adaption like Ballblazer. Ron liked the concept of telling an interactive story, but sadly he still was unable to make his own game since he wasn't hired to do that. He was a simple code monkey. Um, to put it in a derogative term, <laughs> he he must have done something right, though, because in 1985, only like he was hired in 1985, after he was done with his initial jobs, he was asked to design a game himself, together with his colleague Gary Winnick. Nobody really checked in on the two while they were trying to come up with a game, and apparently both of them shared a love for weird 80s horror movies. They love the the unintentional humor of these <laughs> movies, like the thought of teenagers getting slaughtered when none of them get the idea to just leave
1: mm-hmm. was hilarious
0: to them. And they wanted to create something similar, a funny horror adventure game in which you play moronic teenagers that are completely outmatched. And since George Lucas liked the idea, he moved them into Skywalker Ranch. No shit. Which is like... Like Skywalker Ranch, if you had never heard of that, that's like George Lucas's private office. But also it's a 4,700 acre big ranch yeah. with a huge mansion on it. This is where Gilbert and Rinne started to come up with the real ideas for the game. So they they started to assemble this game concept they were coming up with by smacking together horror movie tropes character cliches partially inspired by friends of theirs and just using whatever inspiration came to them. And apparently the mansion, Skywalker Ranch, heavily influenced the design of the mansion that would be in the original game. And instead of actually programming directly, they actually created a board game first. Really? Yeah. They drew floor plans that were kind of inspired by the mansion that they were actually sitting in right now. And um, they drew them onto a board and came up with a script. And this is where like a huge truism of point-and-click adventures comes in. Because you know how in point-and-click adventures, you always have these puzzles that go like... Uh, You have to find the screwdriver under the floorboard to use as a lever to crack open the cookie jar Mm -hmm. which contains a gerbil that you can train by giving it the astrophysics book from the library so you can force it under the planetarium store where it estimates the arrival of Sozin's comet and the end of the world and stuff like that. That's how point and click adventures work, Uh right? You're
1: giving me anxiety (laughs) thinking about it (laughs) because I hate that kind of game <laughs> yeah, yeah i can't it's, it's keep something, track of it all
0: yeah it's something that you either love or completely despise mm-hmm. but it's if, if you make a point-of-click adventure that's usually in it yep. at some point it's like, like fundamental to it
1: yep yes it, it, it's kind of insane yeah but i will say it is rewarding when you figure it out though but i, I totally i am so bad at puzzle games like i get so frustrated so easily <laughs> and i'm just like fuck this <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I remember when I played Point and Click Adventures as a kid, I would always at some point get so frustrated that I would just go to every room and just click every pixel to know yep. if, if that's it? Is that it? Is that it? Is that <laughs> it? Is that it? Is that it? Is that it? <laughs> so the game was supposed to feature many different characters and rooms and items and riddles that only could be solved by combining all of these correctly. They tried to keep track of this entire mess by making posters with arrows and connecting everything together. But the complexity of the game was exponentially expanding, and this is where they noticed how fucked they were. Mm -hmm. Um, Because if you make a story that can split up into different paths because of player decisions, the amount of story design you are amassing on top of yourself becomes impossible to handle. And they knew that creating these intricate story knots from scratch would take years and porting it to all the different platforms would guarantee them so many translation errors that they would never be able to pump out a reliable game. Gilbert started thinking of
1: a solution for this problem already, though.
0: Did you ever create something and felt like you were making this more difficult than it should be?
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, like, look at our board game, right? Like how many iterations did we go through until we were like, okay, this is what we need to do. We need to simplify this and simplify that. And like it gets really easy when you make stuff to get ahead of yourself and then overwhelm yourself. Absolutely.
0: And this was kind of also Gilbert's thought as well. He was like, he started to create his own scripting language in which he could write scripts to optimize this process of creating the adventure game. A game engine, so to say, that would contain modules and resources to create adventure games quicker, but would also make the script readable for humans. Ron wanted to tell stories and any told story requires a script. He imagined being able to program in a way that would make the visible code look like a literal movie script. Let's say, like, I have a game in which you, Tyler, you walk to a cupboard. And if I programmed this movement in Assembler, <laughs> I would have to abstract this movement to um, a language that could be understood by the machine. Okay. Uh, for, to, to run the game, which would not be easy to read for humans then. Ron's idea would make you able to just type, walk Tyler to cupboard. Mm into your script and the machine's interpreter would be able to translate this into machine code automatically. So kind of like an intermediate language. Right, right. And we are, we are not talking about gameplay commands here. We are talking about programming the game like this.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So, so that you could, like, whatever takes place on the screen during the game could be just written into the game as if you were writing a movie script. And the machine would translate it into the actual movement of the sprites and the people that were depicted on the screen. And it would give him the ability to write literal movie scenes as semi-English sentences, and the engine would translate them into what is actually happening. Ron did not just think of this, but he also created this scripting language. Wow. And thereby revolutionized the work process of Lucasfilm's games for years to come. This was only the first part of the engine that they would create, and he called it... Do you know the name? I do not. It's called The Scum. Oh, oh, yeah. Geez. They added things onto the engine later, and there's something funny it comes in here. It got all these different names, and they had like a, a naming convention that all these different added engines would always be named after human bodily fluids. Uh, it was apparently a running joke among them. Uh, I, I, I'll, I'll tell you all of them because they're all amazing. Oh. So scum was the first one. Uh-huh. It was to turn it turned the scripts into the tokens and collected all the resources and put them together. Then there was sputum. Sputum interpreted the scripts and handled the user input. Uh. Then there was, fl- there was flam. Fl- flam handled rooms and checked how objects would relate to each other on the screen. Then there was spit. Spit took care of the different text fonts and text appearing on different parts of the screen. And there was mucus that assisted flam. And there was bile and zist uh which both took care of animation (laughs) Uh, why i wonder i wonder if this naming convention lasted longer within the
1: company than i could find out (laughs) because i I find it hilarious Uh, just i just (laughs) imagine like all these people like having to like recount all of these gross bodily functions when they want to talk about like you know how many windows are going to be in that room
0: yeah I think if you're the right kind of person, it also makes dull work more fun.
1: That's fair. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's fair.
0: Which which programming is a lot of times it's um it's very tedious dull work. Yeah, and as always, it wouldn't be fair to just give credit to one person for all these work for all this work. So Lucasfilm Games was a big studio, and no work was done by a single person entirely. In later versions of the engine, um, they were improved by other members of the Lucasfilm Games
1: community as well.
0: But right. the original version was coded by Ron Gilbert with some help of his friend Chip Morningstar. Is
1: that his real last name?
0: So I have to say, some of these people that worked at Lucasfilm Games, they have weird names. Mm-hmm. But I'm not going to judge names. So maybe these are their
1: real names. I just want to say, Chip Morningstar is a fucking awesome name. And it sounds like a and d character. Yeah.
0: Chip Morningstar. uh, Halfling rogue.
1: (laughs) Yep. Uh, Oh, yeah. (laughs) Chip Morningstar. Chip Morningstar from the Morningstar family. Pleasure to meet (laughs) you. I'm sure you've heard of us.
0: (laughs) Oh, boy. Yeah. um, Yeah. um, Many of the names within the company sound like that.
1: That's great.
0: Another reason for the creation of this engine has yet to be mentioned. And we already talked about how different machines would require different dialects. Of code, And if you were porting games from the Commodore to the Atari, you'd have to rework your code entirely because these machines would use different dialects of code. And this was a huge source for translation errors because someone would have to manually translate mm. these. Yeah. And their engine was supposed to be cross-platform. So the SCUM, it's an abbreviation for Script Creation Utility from Maniac Mansion. Mm. which also spoils the name of the game we're talking about. Um, Named after the first game, it would be used to create Maniac Mansion. And it would be the first title, the game that Winnick and Gilbert were working on. In this game, you kind of play as the teenager Dave, whose girlfriend was kidnapped by a mad scientist called Dr. Fred. And at the start of the game, you choose two out of six different friends who all kind of represent different cliches of high schoolers there's like the nerd, the slick greaser, the punk girl, the surfer boy. I think you kind of get the idea. Yeah. And it's it's a quick and mean game that requires you to start over dozens of times before you start to even slightly understand what you have to do to solve the game. And using the scum, Renick and Gilbert could finish the game in 1987 it took them about 2 years. Yeah, which is when it first released. It wasn't the biggest hit Even though nowadays it's considered a cult classic, Maniac Mansion Mm -hmm. is basically the one of the most important representations of what the scum is. Yeah. And what's also important here is that often, if something is considered a classic, it doesn't mean that it was a hit when it came out. Mm -hmm. Um, They like these two being a hit and being a cult classic later on. They usually don't go together. Like all the movies that come out today and are huge will probably forgotten in twenty years. And some movies that come out now um, and are not huge hits will maybe turn into something legendary and um,
1: refer to a lot
0: in in many years.
1: Yeah, yeah. I was just going to say, you know, I've got this ridiculous smarmy face that i've been sitting here with this whole time and it was because as soon as you said it was luke that this guy went to go work for lucas arts i was like oh he's doing maniac mansion and day of the tentacle uh i know you (laughs) i know you well enough to know that eventually we were going to get a day of the tentacle episode and so i was like i was just waiting (laughs) essentially to at least hear about the precursor of it you know
0: Though I I never was a huge fan of Day of the Tentacle because it introduced an art style that I didn't like. But Maniac Mansion, I played so much. Mm -hmm. I don't even know. I think I I only finished it twice because it's so hard. But I just kept repeating and repeating because of the the different characters that you have, the six different characters that you Mm -hmm. choose, you also have different approaches to how to solve the game hmm. hyper interesting yeah, especially for the time
1: like when yeah. we, like when i think of like big branching things now you know i think i think of something like mass effect or dragon age or something something bioware put out or maybe like one of the fallout games right but like this is this is way older than that
0: yeah and they kind of introduced the first ways of doing that effectively mm-hmm because it's a lot of work to do branching things ever be if you're ever like a D &D master D &D dungeon master and try to make a branching story for your for your players you will figure out after 10 minutes that this was a stupid idea and you should not do Mm -hmm. that
1: yeah you always need tricks to get them back onto those railroad tracks or yeah make them feel like they are doing
0: uh this but don't them do this. Little, little side <laughs> note.
1: I actually used to long ago give little seminars at my old college about um, how to DM. Like, if you've never DM'd before, where do you start? And then I would go into all this stuff and I would talk about choice versus the illusion of choice and how you could give them three options and they all sound totally distinct, but they always lead them to the bad guy's layer at the end where you need them to be. And that's like a skill you got to pick up as you go to figure out how to get what you want, but also give them some kind of autonomy to feel like they're influencing the game.
0: Yeah, which is what many games today do, mm-hmm. like in Fallout 4, where you never do have, a re- like they always pretend that you have decisions, but you never do. Yeah,
1: or like Mass Effect, where they take a game where... Oh, I'm sorry. I was just about to razz on the end of Mass Effect. You know what? I'm just going (laughs) to... We'll just take those three choices and just let them fly off into the distance and I will absolutely fucking play the remaster when it comes out because I can't help myself and I'm addicted.
0: (laughs) That's okay. So Lucasfilm, even it came out, it it wasn't the biggest hit, but they still stuck to the Maniac Mansion train because they could pump out games much faster with the scum now. There was a TV show adaption of Maniac Mansion. That kind of got into the the creepy family that lived in the house, the family of Doctor Fred. Huh. Then there was also the sequel of Maniac Mansion, Maniac Mansion Two: Day of the Tentacle. The TV show first it kind of was close to the story of Maniac Mansion, but during development it diverted so far from what the game was actually about that it was just, just its own thing. Was
1: it a that never? I'm was. sorry. Was it a live action thing or was it a cartoon? It was a cartoon. Oh, okay. Yeah.
0: I didn't know about this and I looked at it and it's kind of terrible. But, <laughs> like I recommend taking a glimpse at it mm-hmm. being like, okay, that's a thing. And then moving
1: on. It's uh, it's kind of painful to go back and watch cartoons from when we were a kid. Uh, some of them don't hold up. Like D-Dal- I was showing Dalcor in the discord the other day that I found this, this website called like, it's called like my nineties TV or something like that. And there's an eighties version and a seventies version. You could just turn it mm-hmm. on. And it'll just play randomized shows and commercials and stuff from the, those time periods. And, like, Beast Wars came on, and I fucking loved Beast Wars as a kid. <laughs> it hurts to watch Beast Wars now. Like, you know, early CGI, and, like, they were writing, obviously, for children, and they were trying to sell toys, and it just, ooh, it's it doesn't hold up. So I'm not surprised that, like, a spinoff TV show of a video game didn't hold up, but also, like... It was the 80s, and that was the thing to do, right? Yeah. So, yeah, um, Maniac Mansion 2,
0: it was kind of about, like in Maniac Mansion 1, you have these two tentacles that show up at some point. They're like sentient tentacles that kind of move by themselves. And then Maniac Mansion 2 of the tentacle, they are kind of the villains themselves. And it's it's about them and a bit of time travel, which is kind of fun. I, I, I recommend checking these games out if you are into point and click adventures that um, get a bit weird. Ron Gilbert and his colleagues definitely had a, a very off kind of humor that can't be described. Um, <laughs> we will go into some other games they made because this is basically the end of the story. They made this; this scum would be used for many, many years to create more games. We will go into a few games that they made still, and this is the only part that's missing in the story now. But what you would describe these games as if you would talk about them in general is that this was the golden age they kind of invented a gold standard for what a point-and-click adventure is and i think whenever you you see a point-and-click adventure or um anything that's related to the genre it probably took inspiration from what ron gilbert and his colleagues did with the scum well, because it was so revolutionary and influential to make games as intricate and funny as these. In 1987, we have Maniac Mansion. Nin- then they just started using the engine. In 1988, they pulled out um, Zach McCracken and the Alien Mind Mindbenders. Oh, man. Wonderful a game. One you might also know, I forgot to put it on the list, but now I think of it. They made Grim Fandango. Mm-hmm. Then 1989, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Graphics Adventure, Indiana Jones games they could make at that time. Then 1990, the game that I would recommend, if you want to check out any game, it's this. um, It's from 1990. It's called Loom. And this is a hidden gem, I think, even though I think many people that know LucasArts, they know this game. But if you ever get your hands on the so-called Scum VM, which is called the Scum Virtual Machine, it's a version of the Scum that runs on modern computers, play this game it's kind of the entire game is basically it, it translated the entire music for Tchaikovsky's Swan Lake into MIDI music. What? And it could be played onto your, onto on, on, on your computer. And it's a, it's
1: a magical experience. Huh. Did, didn't they also make full throttle? Wasn't that another one they I th- made?
0: I think they did. Yeah. Okay. And then of course in 1990, they made the game they are most known for. If it comes to point and click adventures, do you know the name? Oh, I'm totally blanking. The Secret of Monkey Island. Wait, they made Secret of Monkey Island? Yeah, Secret of Monkey Island is the flagship of the scum.
1: Huh, I don't know why I didn't put that together.
0: If you never heard of the
1: game, it's
0: on Steam. They remade it and you can also switch in the Steam version. You can switch to the classic mode so it looks like the old game. It's wonderfully fun and it's funny. And it's full of those point-and-click cliches that drive you insane if you hate them. But it's, it's a great game. It has two parts. They kind of made another part later on. I recommend it.
1: I was just going to say, I think if I remember correctly, a lot of these games got remade... Through Double Fine Productions, which um, have sort of taken that like um, that idea of point and click adventures and sort of continued building on that old style. And I played one of their games called Broken Age, that was really good. One of the, I, there's like a lot of really famous people in that. Jack Black's in it. Um, Elijah Wood is one of the main characters. There's all kinds of people. But I, I'm pretty sure they were in charge of the remakes, if I'm not mistaken.
0: Yeah, the dude that. Is in charge of Double Fine was an old LucasArts Games employee. They kind of spread into the wind after a while and Mm -hmm. became part of each other of of all kinds of um, adventure game development teams. Fun fact about Monkey Island. You know, Steven Spielberg was huge into games. And apparently, like, all of the normal people would have to, like, buy guides and stuff if they didn't figure out how to, to solve a puzzle in Monkey Island. Steven Spielberg apparently would call Ron Gilbert directly. Anytime he, he couldn't solve a puzzle in Monkey Island. And Ron Gilbert says that it was kind of, they called it the Steven Spielberg hot potato in the office, where where he would, like, like um, it's, um, it's Steven on the phone, and he kind of... He has trouble with Monkey Island again. And Ron Gilbert's be like, can you direct it to Steve? I don't, or Peter maybe? I, I don't have time right now. And it, like in the beginning, Ron said that this was the f- the most fun thing to have these conversations with Stephen. But after a while, it got really tedious. <laughs> they just tried to pass yeah. steven spielberg along on the phone line to get rid of him can,
1: can you imagine passing a phone call from steven spielberg around like you don't Be- want because it because he's
0: keeping you from work by talking to you for two hours to solve yeah. that game you made <laughs>
1: I also just, like, love, I have this scene in my mind where, like, Ron Gilbert is home after a long day, and he's lying in bed next to his beautiful partner, whomever they may be, and, you know, it suddenly he's drifting off to sleep, and the phone rings, and he knows that it's <laughs> Steven Spielberg. <laughs> 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 I have to take this, Barbara. You don't understand. It's, it's Steven Spielberg. Just let it ring. Just just let it ring, Ron! No, no, it's it's Steven. He he can never figure out the fucking barrel puzzle. I don't know why he can never figure out the barrel puzzle. I've been over it six times. It's just they're just prime numbers. Does Steven Spielberg not know what fucking prime numbers are? Uh, I gotta take this. Hi Steven, it's Ron. It's a pleasure to hear from you. No, you're not interrupting anything, Steven. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you, did you get the did you get the guide I sent over, Steve? Oh no, your your assistant lost it. That's a real shame. But don't worry, buddy. I I gotcha. <laughs> Um. So my personal favorite, though, even though I played Maniac Mansion a lot, is
0: 1992 Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis. My favorite game on the Scum. I loved it. To play it, crazy thing, you I had it on a floppy disk, and you would have to have the manual. Yeah. And it would have to have some kind of early piracy protection where to start the game, you would have to solve some, some, some glyph puzzle where you would have to align different wheels that you could turn and align in the right way and then the game would start. And you could only do that if you had the manual. So you could also just illegally download the manual and figure that out like that. But that they only figured out later on
1: that they are, Piracy protection wasn't airtight. <laughs> I have seen, um, I have seen most of that game played. Uh, I watched our friend Quad Laser play through most of it, and it it kind of holds up. There's some there's some spots in it that are still like kind of jank, where they don't really explain things to you, and you're like just kind of lost. But like the the later part of the game seemed to drag from what I saw. But like overall, it was pretty cool. I mean, dude, and once you get through it, that game
0: that's a sick game like if i would recommend any game from that was made by lucas arts i would recommend indiana jones and the fate of atlantis and then later on like for the Scum vm other retro games could be translated to the Scum. and this isn't the lucas arts game but it's in the style and i would recommend it's called beneath a steel sky mm, I've heard check that. that game out if you're into this yeah my personal favorite
1: uh, I don't have a lot of um, anecdotes about those kind of games, uh, but I will say that Broken Age, I mentioned it earlier, it seems like a really good spiritual successor um, to that kind of stuff. Same s- sort of stylized graphics, point and click kind of thing, take the item to the place. I'll totally admit to all of you out there that I cheated and just looked up some of the solutions when I got frustrated, but, um, you know, that I. It's really fascinating to hear where this all came from.
0: Yeah. Let's just listen to what Ron Gilbert, what happened to him in the end. Okay. Ron Gilbert, he left Lucasfilm after they did most of the scum classics. But in 1992, he joined Humongous Entertainment, founded by LucasArts producer Shelley. She deserves kind of her own episode. So we're not going to talk, get into her too much. But later on in 1995, Gilbert creates his own company called. Cave Dog Entertainment as a sister of Humongous Entertainment and because Humongous Entertainment focused on creating kids games and Cave Dog, Cave Dog would focus on creating games for grown-ups. The company ran for a few years, but according to Gilbert, he kind of wasn't able to balance out managing the company and still being a developer. Um, and these problems kind of caused that the company ended. That's kind of a problem that we ran in with Harvest Moon already. Yep. That the guy was like, oh, yeah, uh, I actually want to make games and not manage a company.
1: Stuff like yep. that. Yasuhiro Wada just, just wants to make weird games. That's it. <laughs>
0: he has a blog about computer gaming where he writes about especially developing games. Also during the big World of Warcraft heyday, he created a monkey island themed guild <laughs> really? Um, on his server, uh, I think he was in Keldorai He kept joining different developers as, like, um, like a freelancer, mm-hmm. contributing his skills. He helped Telltale Games create a Monkey Island interpretation in 2009. In 2013, he directed the creation of Double Fine Productions. He worked for them for a while. Yeah, the game The Cave. Maybe that says something to you. I haven't played it. Um, it wasn't. Also, it wasn't. Well, very well received, but he's mm-hmm. very proud of it. It's one of his favorite games he ever made. Huh. It's, it's, it has a similar, slightly similar idea than Maniac mentioned that you can choose different characters that are all kind of terrible and you have to solve a puzzle with these characters. And while solving the puzzle, you learn more about them. It's kind of a, a, a personal development experience, stuff like that. And I guess the most recent thing he did, Thimbleweed Park from 2017. That's a game that he basically directed and created with a small team that was critically acclaimed. That's awesome. I didn't know he worked on that. That's really cool. So the thing is, most of these games that he created were ever super hyped. But this is where we go back to where we started. Because Spielberg apparently once said to Gilbert while they were creating a game, you have to believe in your idea enough to dance naked on top of it. Hmm. And Gilbert then added, if you believe in what you're making, if you believe in it so much that you will dance naked on top of it, that it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks, we should always strive to always make whatever we are making for ourselves. And we can want other people to like it and enjoy it, but at its core, you have to make it for yourself. And you have to believe in it enough to dance naked on top of it. Because if you do that, it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. Wow. I really like that. I really like that a lot. Huh. So don't like to go back to that ironic part, like that cynical part with the start. Yeah. It's okay to follow your dreams. Yeah. And it might work out. And even if it doesn't, because people didn't like you, try to do stuff for yourself. Yeah. We can go into sources if you want to. And we can also go into how you like the episode and um, what do you think about this?
1: So this is great because um, even though I was totally talking some mad shit earlier about puzzle games, I actually played a ton of point and click games back in the day, um, back on, you know, in the days of old when home PCs were just becoming a thing. And so it's really fascinating to me to sort of know where this stuff came from. And, you know, I know like Day of the Tentacles and your favorite, uh, but the tentacles are like so iconic now that they're in everything and you could spot them places once you know how to like see them. So I used to go to conventions, you know, back when we were allowed to go outside and uh, you know, you'd see, I'd always see these tentacles, people dressed up as this tentacle, you know, I'm at a rave at this convention and there's a tentacle dancing in the middle of the, the room. And I was, I was always so confused and it wasn't until like I started hanging around on Twitch and hanging around with you. And I met everybody that we know and, you know, you start talking about Day of the Tentacle that I realized what it was and how many times I had seen it and it just everywhere. Right. And so, like, it's fascinating how many, well, tentacles it has in everything and how much it's influenced the industry. So, like, I really appreciated this, man. This was great. Yeah, it was fun to research. Yeah. Thank you so much. I got
0: most of my info from um, he, he does a lot of talks on PAX. One good one was in 2013. you can check that out on YouTube. Also, Lucasfilm has a good wiki, a good fan wiki, and has like archived all of its old rep um, home pages that they had where they represented themselves. Also I used an interview called Use Questions on developer Ron Gilbert, Ron
1: Gilbert a Retrospective on US Gamer and this was fun. This is great. Thanks again, man. Oh also hey, while I have you here. Congrats on making our 10th episode.
0: 10 episodes. 10 episodes.
1: Yes. So. I wanted to tell you, I quit this is it fuck you tyler no this is the of i quit it. first i'm done no we hit I my qu- i hit my quota and i don't have to put up with your bullshit anymore not eh, not. look at me not i'm not. some weird little german guy and i have all these <laughs> colloquialisms no one can understand and i've got i say all these words that have 87 syllables and we just mash them all together it's like that's enough. what language is oh it's just better <laughs> grunts
0: Germany is just US people that can't speak correctly (laughs) pretending to know another language
1: (laughs) (laughs) the views of the members of Codex Rex do not represent the views of Germany or the United States please use these views with caution (laughs) (laughs) no jokes aside uh, so Docs and I we mentioned this last episode when we started this podcast um, we were just kind of like yeah we want to make a podcast and like we started talking and we were like, what about like a video game history thing? And I remember sort of pitching this to you and I'll, I'll tell you this real quick. Uh, well, you know, this docs uh, originally I had an idea. I wanted a podcast. I didn't know what I wanted it to be on. And I said to docs, what if, cause this is back when docs is still streaming. Uh, what if we did a, like a podcast about like streaming and like streaming stuff. And <laughs> docs was just like, I think that's a terrible idea. Uh, who the fuck are we to tell other people how to, like, stream and what's right and what's wrong. And I was like, huh. Y- yeah. <laughs> and so, like, <laughs> I did some soul searching. was like, well, he's right. Who the fuck would listen to that, right? <laughs> and so, like, I started thinking about it. And we pitched this idea of this video game history podcast. And we started workshopping it. And uh, so while I was on stream one day, uh, we were workshopping names and someone joked uh, about Codex Rex as like a joke name. Was actually, ex- the original
0: name was Codex Rex and the Badger.
1: Yeah, and I refused because I was yeah. like, the, I'm not, <laughs> I don't want a fucking nickname, right? Like, And so uh, we joked about that. And so then when it came time to actually make the thing, I called it Codex Rex and and it stuck. But we, the whole, this is a very long winded way to say that we originally set it at, let's do 10 episodes See if we like it. Find our footing, and then, like, if we can do that, then we can do more, and we can figure out what we like and what we don't like. And so we finally hit our—we finally hit ten episodes. So congrats, Docs. It only took us since yeah. April, <laughs>
0: almost a year. That's okay, let's go for twelve, and we could call it a season.
1: Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Season two. Oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> anyway um so yeah this has been fun man and um yeah thanks for doing this with me and thanks to all of you who listen to us ramble <laughs> about things we think are cool um just we appreciate it yeah thanks for hanging out and i hope all of you have a good rest of the week yeah stay safe out there have a good one friends okay see ya bye